and scary? That's the passage we're looking at tonight. Matthew chapter 16, 21 through 28. I'll tell you why I think it's scary. is because if the devil can use Peter as an agent of deception, I wonder, can the devil use me? I would think so. And he says, you're not better than Peter. (laughs) I think so. And I'm worried, have I inspected my life to make sure that I am not being an agent by which I am deceiving people? Even though I'm a follower of Christ, have I bought into lies of the devil that would be a temptation or a test or an, an agent of deception for people? Tonight, as we go through Matthew 16, we're going to look at how exactly Peter was that agent. And what I'm going to ask us to is to inspect our lives and say, have we become the same? Have we bought into the same lie and even perpetuated the same lie? What lie was it? What lie did Peter buy into? The lie that Peter bought into is that we could have a Messiah without the cross. Right? He bought into a lie that says you can follow God and not have to suffer. He bought into a lie that because salvation is free, it's easy. I think there's one big message that I'm going to try to get across to you. I think it's the same message that is in this passage, that though grace is free, it isn't cheap. Though grace is free, it isn't cheap. Jesus is going to ask us to sacrifice absolutely everything to follow him. He's going to warn us that if we're going to follow him, that's going to involve a daily sense of denying ourselves. Jesus will use the phrase, taking up our cross daily. And that's what characterizes following Jesus. He's warning us, says, grace is free, but it isn't cheap. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. You've already turned there because y'all were, I saw many of you were thinking ahead, but I haven't. Matthew chapter 16. Um, What I'm going to do is, even though we're going to study mostly 21 through 28, it'll be helpful to remember some of the context. So for this purpose, I'm going to start actually in verse 13, and that'll just remind us of what we studied a few weeks ago, but we're going to study together mostly 21 through 28. But I'll start in verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But you, he asked them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded, Simon, son of Jonah, you are blessed because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the forces of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth is already bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth is already loosed in heaven. And he gave the disciples orders to tell no one that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed and raised on the third day. 
And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh no, Lord, this will never happen to you. But he turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me because you are not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is coming with angels in the glory of his Father, and he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we pray that you will open our eyes first to understand this passage and secondly to understand ourselves. The truth is that most of us are afraid of suffering. We're afraid of what it might cost to follow you wholeheartedly. The idea of taking up our cross daily is okay when it's just a theory, but when we analyze ourselves, we find out that too often we're a lot like Peter, and we think there's a way to glory without suffering. And so I pray that you will convict us in all the right areas, help us to see our pride and our sin, and the power of self-absorbed. Convict us, and help us through this message to follow you more closely and more fully. In your name I pray, amen. What I want to do this tonight, time's getting away from me, is the, is the first thing I want to do is just walk through the passage with you. And at the end of the passage, I'm going to come through and try to think about what is it going to look like for us to take up our cross. But right now, let's just try to get in our heads what is actually happening in this story. And the first thing that happens is you see the guy who looked like he was an all-star really mess up he strikes out right he was an all-star because we're talking about peter in the passage we studied the last time we were together and what we just read peter was the first to recognize jesus is the christ he's the son of the living god and jesus recognized that's an awesome thing that you've recognized that's a gift from god he is truly a believer a follower and a, a blessed person and jesus says i'm going to because of what you recognize i'm going to change your name you're going to go from Simon to Peter. You're going to be the rock on which I'm going to build my church. Peter had just got lifted up pretty high. And then immediately after that, Peter's told, get behind me, Satan. So what is it that messes Peter up? We see it in Jesus' conversation. After Jesus is told that he's the Christ and the disciples recognize it, Jesus says, okay, well, let me tell you what the Christ has to do, what the Messiah has to do. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's talking about himself. He says, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be betrayed by all the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. They're going to betray me. They will murder me. 
And then in three days, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples do not like this message. And I can't help but think that the idea of rising again must have just, because it seems like they have really hung on the fact that the Messiah get murdered. Peter says, no way. That can't happen to you. We put our trust in you that you're the one that's coming. You can't be killed. Right? There's got to be a way to glory that doesn't include you being betrayed and murdered. And what we find out, we can even read between the lines here, what, what Peter is saying here is that there's a way to be the Christ without being the suffering Messiah. There's a way to get the glory of the Son of God without obedience unto death. Peter thinks you can have it all without any of the suffering, without any of the... He sounds to me kind of like um, he's given a, a get-rich-quick scheme here. You can have your million dollars without having to work a day, right? You can get A's on all your tests and you won't even have to study. You can lose all the weight and you won't even have to watch what you're eating, right? Except for the stakes are higher. You can save mankind without having to die. He's trying to sell a get-rich-quick scheme of grand proportion and Jesus sees through it. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Your offense, you are an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns. You're thinking about man's. Man's concern is ease and comfort. God's concern is holiness and justification. Right? Our concern is to minimize our suffering. God's concern is to maximize his glory and our reward. Must be glad that Jesus wouldn't settle for the easy road. But Jesus sees through it and he doesn't fall for the temptation. Um, before we move on through this passage, I want to take a little time out, a little pause, and do, I want to talk a little bit about an apologetics issue. If you're not sure, familiar with the term apologetics, apologetics is kind of a defense of what it means to be a Christian, a defense of why we believe we're Christians. And in the world of apologetics, really there's, there's, one, there, there's a bunch of arguments that people have against Christianity, but one of the major ones is what we call the problem of evil. They don't believe, well, I'll give, you the, I'll give you the accusation. What they basically say is that if God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then God would end all suffering. But suffering still exists. Therefore, they say, God is either not all-powerful or not all-good. And they think that that's checkmate. Right? Now, there's a lot of great responses to that that have been written by brilliant thinkers, and I'm not going to try to defend all of those or go through them, but it seems to me that what Jesus realizes here is at least one proper response. And Jesus would say, your argument seems to have in mind the concerns of men, not the concerns of God. He says, the problem with your argument is there's a faulty premise because you're only thinking like a man here. Think about the book of Matthew. If Matthew has shown us anything about Jesus, it's that he has no limit to his power. Right, so Jesus, if he sees a person who is lame and can't walk, he can heal them with a touch or with a word. Blindness, he can restore. Deafness, he can restore. Demons, he can cast out. If the seas 
are storming and windy, and he can speak to them, and they will stop. There is no limit to Jesus' power. But Jesus still goes to the cross. When Peter says to him, there is a way for you to go be the Messiah without suffering, Jesus doesn't say, you're right, I have limitless power, I'm going to stop this. Is that a sign that Jesus lacks love? No, in fact, it's the exact opposite. It's a sign that he has infinite, perfect love. Why does Jesus go to the cross? Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us. That while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The suffering of Christ is not proof of that God is impotent or without love. In fact, it's proof of the opposite. The sufferings that Christ endured shows us how great God's love is for us. I don't have all the answers. I don't know why God hasn't completely wiped out all forms of suffering. But I do find it incredibly encouraging that Rather than sit back and watch, he became a participant in our suffering. God stepped into our world and suffered with us and for us, because, not because he had no other option, but because he loves us. We believe that there is no greater display of God's love and power than that God became a man and died in our place. I know that there's a lot to answer to the problem of evil. But the first part of the answer is that God did not view the problem as insurmountable to him. What he did is he stepped into the problem and endured it with us. He endured suffering on our behalf. What that tells us is that we must be thinking about suffering in a way that's very different than God's. When we think that all suffering must be bad and must be avoided at all costs, God didn't think that way. In fact, he said, I willingly and happily will endure suffering on your behalf as a demonstration of my love. What it tells me is that we don't think rightly about suffering. At least not always. also tells us is that if we want to be like Jesus, that we need to change our mindset. Rather than thinking suffering is something to be avoided at all costs, that we need to become people who sacrifice, we demonstrate our love by sacrificing the pursuit of someone else. My goal in life is not to avoid suffering at all costs. In fact, I will happily deny myself in order to follow Jesus and to love the people he loves. And that's the point of the rest of Jesus' interaction with the disciples. Let me read it again. I'll start in verse 24 and go through verse 28. Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world? yet loses his life? What will a man gain in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. I assure you, there are some standing here 
who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In my opinion, this passage is not incredibly hard to understand. It is incredibly hard to apply. The first verse is Jesus' principal statement. It's his command. It's what he wants of us. He says, his first verse is, he says, if anyone wants to come with me, if anyone wants to be Christ's follower, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. If you want to be a follower of Jesus, you deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow him. Taking up our cross is not a phrase we use all the time. Uh, it probably refers to just the Roman tradition, and we know this is true of Jesus, that those sentenced to execution by crucifixion carry their own crosses, the cross being to their own cross, to their site of execution. So I think Jesus is using this as a metaphor that you are daily dying. You're giving yourself over to death. You're daily determining my needs and my desires are not first. I'm self-sacrificial. I'm giving of myself for the sake of God and his kingdom. After he gives us his command, he gives us three explanations. The first one is kind of a paradox. And then the second one is just easy logic for us to follow. And then the third one just kind of fleshes out the logic that he's already given us. The paradox, that's a paradox is just something that doesn't seem to make sense. It seems to be contradictory. He says, if anyone wants to save his life, he must lose it. Right? And if anyone loses life, he will save it. Right? The idea is something that we all basically already understand. That it will take sacrifice now in order to get a reward later. Right? We all kind of understand this. Because if anyone wants to... I got lost in my, in my notes here. He says, if anyone... I started to go to the next point, but I think I'm moving too quickly. I'm going to slow it back. He says, if anyone denies himself, I am so, let me just read it. All right, just get back into the Bible, right, Eddie? He says, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. And the principle is simply, if you want, let me think of the best way to explain it. That is basically a, basically an investment strategy. What he's saying, that if you want at the end of your life to have something, you're going to have to give up something now. Right? Anybody who spends everything they have now won't have anything at the end. So he says, if you want to save your life, it's kind of a reverse mentality. You give it up now. You 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 invest it all right now, so that at the end you'll have a reward. He says, if you keep everything now, when the end, you won't have anything invested and you won't have anything whatsoever, right? He's just talking about this paradoxical idea, but it's an investment strategy. If it's hard to follow, the next passage is way easier, right? Because it's just a straightforward logic. He says, what will it benefit you if you gain the whole world, yet you lose your life or you lose your soul, right? What if you spend all of your time on amusement and entertainment. And in the time that you prepare to die, you realize 
I don't have any. Just the memories of amusement and entertainment. Those investments will not last. It reminds me of Jim Elliott's famous quote. There's no fool that gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. The next explanation, he is explaining what is he talking about? What can we gain? And he talks about he's going to come back. In verse 27, he says, I'm going to come with the angels and the glory of the Father, and I'm going to reward everyone according to what they have done. What I'm asking you to do right now is to to choose your investment strategy. Will you invest your life now in such a way that there is a reward in the end? Or will you frivolously spend it now so that when when the end comes, you have nothing to show for it? He's just asking you, How are you spending your time? How are you spending your money? How are you spending your your energy? Are the things that you've done this week, will they matter in 20 years, in 50 years, or 100 years? Do they have any eternal significance or any eternal weight? How are you investing your life? And the measurement of how you're investing your life is measured in sacrifice, which is a principle we all understand anyway. Because we believe that in all other aspects. If you want to make a good grade on your test tomorrow, you will sacrifice the time to study today. If you want to make the football team next year, you'll start working out now. If you want a retirement package, you better start putting your money away right now. Because we understand that it's sacrificing now and enables me to do something later. And Jesus is saying, apply that understanding spiritually. Are you living your life in a way right now that will matter in eternity? The last verse probably is the hardest to understand in this passage. Verse 28, he says, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The reason that's probably hard to understand, I think that because we don't know exactly what he means by the coming of his kingdom. There's some people who are skeptics of Christianity in general, and they'll say, see, this is evidence that Jesus or Matthew 1 were wrong, that they made a mistake. Jesus coming in his kingdom, they believe, is the end time Jesus returning. And they said, well, all the disciples are dead. They've been dead for 1,900 years, and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So does this prove that Jesus was wrong? But I don't think that's what's going on here. And one of the reasons it seems clear to me is because of the word until. Jesus says, you will not die until you have seen the coming of the Son of God in his kingdom. So you will not die until means that he's still expecting a death. And what we know from the rest of the apostles teaching about the coming of Christ is that once Jesus comes, he's ending the cycle of death. Right? There's some who have already died. But when Jesus comes in the clouds, we're going to be raised up to meet with them. He ends the cycle. So there's something about the beginning or this coming of the kingdom that they'll see, and they won't die until after that. Right? So what I suggest and what a lot of scholars have suggested, and really the whole history of the believing church has said, is that he's not talking about the second coming here. He's talking about the beginning of the second coming. 
And the debate is, what is that? Some of the earliest church fathers thought he's talking about the transfiguration, which is what we'll look at in chapter 17 and next week. Um, other scholars have said it is the crucifixion, that Jesus has begun his reign with his crucifixion. And he's saying, you will not die until after you have seen the beginning of the kingdom. I don't honestly know exactly what event Jesus is saying begins the coming of the kingdom. But I think the point of verse 27 is still very clear. What he is saying is that they will receive their reward within their lifetime. The beginning of the reward that you receive for your sacrifices will begin in the lifetime of their their ability to see Jesus. Before they die, they will begin to see what they are sacrificing for. So let me just back up and try to do a big summary of what we've seen in the passage. What I've tried to argue basically from this passage is that salvation or grace, though it's free, it isn't cheap. That what Jesus is asking them is to die. He's asking them to make massive sacrifices of their own will and their own desire in order for the the furtherance or the glorification of God's kingdom. And so the question that I think we have to ask for the rest of our time here is what does that look like for us? What does it look like if you and I were to walk out of here tonight and say, we're going to die to ourselves in pursuit of Jesus? And I think the first answer of that is Jesus himself. Right? There's a reason why Jesus tells the disciples, you'll have to die, you'll have to, take, you'll have to deny yourself and take up your cross after he's just told them that he was going to die. He's saying, I'm the model of how you're supposed to live. Philippians 2 tells us to have the same mind in ourselves that was also in Christ Jesus. That although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Instead, he humbled himself. He took on the form of a, of a servant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. What he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, then you need to look like me. And the way that you can look like me is by denying the rights that you have in order for the service of other people. Right? If you and I are going to deny ourselves, then we need, we need to begin thinking, not what are my rights and how can I secure them, but how can I give up those rights in order to benefit the people who are around me? Our first model of denying ourselves and taking up our cross is Jesus himself. There's a couple other models that I've been thinking about a little bit this week, and I just wanted to share a little bit about them with you. One of those is a model of denying yourself and what that looks like in repentance. And I want to talk to you about a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. And there's a second model that I've been looking at of self-denial. And his name is Adoniram Judson. And he's talked a little bit about what it looks like to deny yourself in, in missions and going after the people who God loves. Let me start by telling you a little bit about Rosaria Butterfield. I, Pastor Johnny recommended her biography is called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. I've, I'm reading it right now, and it's, it's bowling me over. It is an incredible book. 
her story is that she was a professor of queer studies. She's a le- she was a lesbian professor of queer studies at Syracuse and had just gotten her tenure, so she was very imp- kind of important at, at Syracuse and decided to write a book on kind of the stupidity of the Christian right, right? She was writing against, especially Thomas Keeper's movement was one of the big things that she was upset with. So she had written a little article in the local newspaper, and a local pastor read it and sent her a letter. And in this letter, he told her about some of the ideas that he thought were interesting and some that he wanted to challenge and wanted to know if he could ever get together and talk with her. And she said that it was a strange, strange letter because when she got, when she wrote her article, she got tons of mail, and all of it was either hate mail or fan mail. And she had two boxes beside her desk, and one was for all the hate mail, and one was for all the fan mail. And she got this letter from this pastor, and she couldn't decide which one to put it in. She said, I felt like this guy didn't hate me. He seemed to love me and genuinely want to talk to me. But he certainly didn't seem to be a fan either. And so she wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with it. And because she was writing a book, she finally decided to give him a call and see if she could interview him as part of her research process. Well, this began a process of her reading and studying the Bible and meeting with him that introduced her to Jesus Christ in a real way. It was in the late 90s that she gives her life to Christ. She meets him through her study of his word and decides, I want to be a Christian. The problem is, is at the same time, she is a lesbian living with another woman. She teaches queer studies at Syracuse, so that's her job, right? She is really involved in tons of things that seem antithetical to a lot of what's going on in the Christian church. And she thinks, now... What is she going to do? And so she writes in this book about how every step that she takes in giving her life to Christ felt like she was becoming a traitor to her friends and to her old life. And how every, every bit of change that happened was destroying her. And at first, she said it felt like just destruction in some ways. She felt anguish. She started having nightmares and couldn't sleep. And she's writing about how horrible the idea of walking away from this old life was. And it was eating her alive. But at the same time, she thought, if Jesus is king, I don't have a choice. And so what she decided that no matter how it made her feel, she was going to walk forward and give every area of her life over to Christ. And that happened over time because she said as she kept doing it, she learned that there were more and more and more areas to give over. Right? It wasn't like she just made the decision and then she was perfect from then on. She's finding herself to be, she said at first she thought it was just an issue of homosexuality. And then as time went on, she's like, that was the least of my issues. She said, that was a symptom of a symptom of a symptom. She said, the getting rid of my pride, of my love for amusement. She said some of these were the things that, I could, that were really destructive for her to get, to get over. As time went on, in this book, she says that she began to feel a sense of peace and relief from these things. At first, just as an example, she had decided that being, because she was homosexual, she said, I knew that I loved women, and I couldn't imagine myself ever loving men. And I decided that following Jesus might mean for the rest of my life being single and never having a sexual relationship with another person. And she said that was a death to her. Over time, 
her heart began to change. She's now married and has a family. But when she decided to follow Christ, she didn't know that or even feel that that was going to happen. She just said, if Christ is king, then these desires for family are all secondary. I'll follow him anyway. Now, she began to taste the benefits of following Christ, but that's not how it happened for her. That's not how it started. For her, she said, if anybody wants to follow him, she said, I'm going to have to deny myself and take up my cross and die. I think in my own life that I wonder if I've been that committed to die in my own process of repentance. Some of my sins aren't as hard or I shouldn't say hard, but as a parent has heard. I wasn't in a community that was anti-Christian. And so joining a church for me wasn't turning my, I didn't feel like I was turning my back on my friends. But at the same time, I find it often very hard for me to take radical steps of killing sin in my life because of how inconvenient it is. I honestly think that Rosaria Butterfield's process of repentance glorifies God far more than many of us who have never struggled with homosexuality in our lives because she was willing to die in a way that some of us have never even fully tasted. I'll read a quote from her before I move on. She said, making a life commitment to Christ was not merely a philosophical shift for her. It was not a one-step process. It did not involve rearranging the surface prejudices and fickle loyalties of her life. Conversion didn't fit in her life at all. Conversion overhauled her soul and her personality. It was arduous and intense. She said, I experienced with great depth the power and authority of God in my life. In it, I learned, and I am still learning, how to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. She said, when you die to yourself, you have nothing from your past to use as clay from which to mold your future. She walked away from an entire lifestyle and friends and jobs and everything in order to follow Christ. I think that's the kind of repentance that he's calling for us. I will die. I will deny myself and my desires and my wants. I will not keep pet sins. Things that other people can smile at or think aren't a big deal. I will endure whatever sort of mockery or criticism I will get at my job or from my family or my friends in order to wholeheartedly, without reserve, follow Christ. I think that is what a repentance that's characterized by self-denial and taking up our cross would look like. There's another person who has helped me think through what self-denial and taking up my cross would look like, and that was Adoniram Judson. If you're familiar with him, he was the first American missionary um, with the first Baptist American missionary who went with the uh, Baptist missions to Burma. And he has a huge legacy now, but it didn't start easy for him. He was there for, I believe, about 20 years before he saw his first convert, went through an intense depression, lost three wives, several children, like a 
in the neighborhood of 10, I can't remember exactly, fought intense sicknesses. And all of this he expected when he went to Africa or to Burma. He expected this. He wrote a letter before he was leaving to the woman that he wanted to marry, and he wrote a letter actually to her dad to ask for her hand in marriage. And it revealed to me what he understood it meant to deny himself and take up his cross, what he understood that to mean. So let me read you this letter. This is Mr. Hasseltine, which is Anne's dad. He says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of the perishing and mortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God, can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Brad and I, Justin, denying yourself and taking up your cross meant enduring happily any suffering that could come in the way of you proclaiming the glories of Christ to a people who have never heard of. This brought me back to Peter talking to Jesus. He said, Jesus, there's a way that you can do this without suffering at all. There's a way that you can be a Messiah and not have the cross. Peter said, that's a message for Satan. I wonder what Mr. Hasseltine, that was Ann's dad, how could his response have looked like Satan, have looked like the devil? I think he would have turned to his daughter and said, you can still be a Christian and not suffer. You can still be a Christian and never give your life for missions. God doesn't love the poor any more than he loves the rich. God doesn't love those who die early any more than those who die late. Why give everything in this pursuit? As I read this, I've prayed. One day, that might be Dorothy asking to go to a, a world where she very likely could die. And I want to, I want to say I will sacrifice even my daughter's safety for the glory of God and his kingdom. In the same way that he said, in the belief that I will soon meet her in a world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from the heathens that are saved. Who cares if Dorothy lives to be 80 or 90 or 100 who cares if Dorothy ever has a lake house or ever has all of the comforts in the world if she could stand before God with the acclamations and praise of those who've been saved in the heathen lands? Wouldn't that far outshine 
wouldn't I be happy to give up, for her to give up what she cannot keep in order to gain what she can never lose? So if you're a parent, would you happily let go of your children in order to see them on the day that you'll be reunited with the coming of Christ, knowing that they have participated and followed Christ, and they participated in his work of mission to the entire world. Or whatever you think they've been called. Maybe Maybe they haven't been called to India. Maybe they've been called somewhere else. But it's a death for you to watch them go. Would you do it anyway for his glory? What if it's not your kids? What if it's yourself? What if God's called you to do something? To give money that you've tucked away for a special day. To go somewhere that you feel is dangerous. Maybe God's called you to build a relationship with somebody that you think only tears you down. Would never respect you. But God's called you to be a missionary to that person. Jesus is our ultimate model of self-denial. He says, if you're going to follow me, you're going to look like me. I left heaven. Speaking of Jesus, Jesus left heaven. And he came to earth and he lived to die. That was his purpose. His purpose of coming to earth was to die on our behalf. Can we consent to give our lives for others the way he gave his life for us? two ways in which I'm specifically trying to apply that to my life, and I'm going to ask you to apply it to yours. Will you consent to die to yourself in the area of repentance? And I don't know what sin it is that you probably know in your heart. This is the sin that I'm struggling with, and, and I've been plagued with for year after year after year. Will I die to that sin by cutting it off at the root, even if it's embarrassing to me, even if it's going to mean showing people what's going on in my life, even if it's going to mean cutting off luxuries like internet or TV that I have no control, I can't control myself around the luxuries that other people have. Will I deny myself those luxuries in order to follow Christ? Will you exercise self-denial and repentance in the area of repentance? And then secondly, will you exercise self-denial in the area of mission? Will you send your kids and send yourself in a way that hurts? In a way that this is the money that I meant for fun and for entertainment. But I feel that God is calling us to go here. I'll pray and the music team can come up. Dear Lord.